Well, good morning, everyone. My name is uh, Pastor David Weber. For those of you who have missed me over the last couple of weeks, it's a joy to be back here with you worshiping our, our Lord and Savior together. I'd invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 6, continuing our study of the book of Hebrews, picking up in verse 13 and going through verse 20, the end of the chapter. Now, as we come to the passage for this morning, I began to think through this idea of inheritance. You'll see this idea show up in our verses for this morning and how inheritances can be a tricky business. A few years ago, someone that I know rather well was dealing with a will that created a lot of tension in her family. Now, the first point of contention was that one of the siblings had borrowed money from his father, and the father, being a rather particular man and wanting to be fair to his other children, made a note in his will that his son would receive his inheritance with the borrowed amount deducted. Seemed rather judicious, however, it made his son feel slighted when his other siblings received a larger inheritance than he, and factions began to form about whether or not they should just give him the same amount of money or not. The second issue that they had to deal with was that the inheritance was much smaller than they thought it was going to be. They anticipated that they were going to receive a large inheritance, but end-of-life care had drained much of their parents' money. And this led to disappointment and accusations of mismanagement of funds and suspicion aimed at the sibling who had acted as the primary caregiver in the last year or two of their parents' lives. There's no shortage of drama around wills and inheritance. Maybe you have experienced something along these lines as well. Mystery movies, novels often center around the question of a lost or disputed will. Who hasn't had a relative threaten either jokingly or seriously to write you out of the will if you act contrary to their wishes? Inheritance can be a tricky business. And there is never full assurance that you're going to receive what you anticipate until it is actually in hand. Throughout the Bible and in particular, the book of Hebrews, this theme of inheritance is of central importance. It is the image used to describe the substance of our promised salvation. In the Old Testament, inheritance was the particular lot of land in Canaan that was given to a tribe or a family in perpetuity. Under God's law, boundaries were drawn and land was assigned, and that land was possessed from one generation to the next. It was the family's inheritance. As a temporal sign of inheritance in the Old Testament, though, moves into the New Testament, the sign now points to what is eternal and what is true. Not merely Canaan, but the whole earth. And not merely an earth infected by sin, but a new earth redeemed from the fall by the blood of Christ. Free from pain and sorrow, disease, weakness, sin, and death. That is the inheritance that the Word of God promises to the people of God. That's our inheritance. 
Often we give ourselves to an idea that the final state of man is eternal disembodiment, souls separated from their broken physical form, but that is not the hope of a Christian. Heaven is an intermediate state, but when Christ returns, He will finally and fully establish His eternal kingdom. He will raise His saints from their graves, and He will reunite the two essential aspects of our being, our body and our soul. And then he will welcome us into an eternal inheritance. And I believe that it will not be so foreign as you might suspect, but rather it will be this earth renewed and purified. This land, these hills and mountains and streams and lakes that we are familiar with. The fields and the meadows of Virginia will not miss out. The Rivermont neighborhood will not be the one place on earth left unrenewed, for the whole earth will be the possession of our Lord in Christ, and He will be faithful to make all things and all places new. You see, our inheritance is not some ethereal, unconcrete idea, but it will be here. The inheritance of the Christian is this soil, this ground, this land, this street, this city, this state and country and earth will be our inheritance. And we who have been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb will possess it for all eternity. In a word, our inheritance, what is promised to us in the Word of God, is a stake in the eternal, renewed earth. This world renewed and given to us for God's glory. But how do we know that we will inherit this coming kingdom? How do we know that we won't be written out of God's will? Or that God won't change the terms of our inheritance? This tension is what the author to the Hebrews is addressing in our passage for this morning. How can we have assurance that we will receive this promised inheritance? In verse 12, we have a setup for what comes in verses 13 through 20. You can look down there at verse 12. We read, if we would grow in our assurance, we are to be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. How are we to have greater assurance of our future inheritance? What we'll see is that we must patiently wait for God's promise. We must hold fast to God's oath, and we must boldly follow God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, if we would have assurance that we will receive the inheritance. So here now, The word of the Lord, Hebrews chapter 6, I'll begin in verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. 
So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is God's holy word for us, his people. Let us pray. Father, we pray that you would guide us now by your word and spirit, and that in your light we may see true light, and in the truth of your word that we might find freedom and assurance, and in your will discover peace through Jesus Christ, our Lord, whose name we do pray through. Amen. Now, over and over again, as you read through the New Testament, you see this man Abraham put forth as an example of faith. Paul, in the books of Galatians and Romans, uses Abraham as an example of justification by faith alone. In Romans chapter 4, we read that that is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. That's all of Abraham's offspring. Not only to the inherit of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As James is explaining the relationship between faith and works, he too goes to Abraham saying, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. Now, in the book of Hebrews, we see that Abraham is put forward as an example to imitate when it comes to waiting for the promise of God with patience. Look again at verses 13 through 15. In verse 12, we were told to imitate those who receive the promise. Now, in verse 13, we are given someone to look to an example It says, for when God had made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Now the story of Abraham begins in Genesis 12. And there the Lord calls this man Abram, before he changes his name to Abraham, calls this man Abram out of his own land to the land of Canaan. And there he says that he will give him an inheritance. He says, I will be your God, I will give you children, and I will give you the land of Canaan. This is the promised inheritance that was given to Abraham. You see, there is an eternal inheritance that is to come, but it begins with Canaan and the promise to Abraham. But it culminates in a new creation kingdom in Christ. I will be your God. I will give you a lineage. I will give you this land. However, Abraham 
didn't own any land in Canaan. And he and his wife, Sarah, were beyond childbearing years. It was unbelievable that God could keep his promise to give Abraham a continual inheritance in Canaan. For several years, the promise did not come to pass, and Abraham and Sarah had to wait. And with each passing year, it seemed less and less likely that God would be able to keep his promise until finally the miraculous occurred. And Sarah bore a son named Isaac. And yet God was not done testing Abraham's patience and faith. For once the child had grown, the Lord called Abraham to sacrifice this son. You see, the son was the substance of the inheritance that was promised, and God said, I want you to give him back to me. And the quote in verse 14 comes not from the earlier part of Abraham's life, but when he was to offer Isaac. And in faith, Abraham tied his son and laid him on the altar of sacrifice. But at the last moment, the Lord intervened and he provided a substitute, a ram to take the place of Isaac. This is the example of faith that is given to us. Later in the book of Hebrews, we read that Abraham was willing to offer the life of his son because by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. For he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. Now to understand the point, we must take a moment to understand how Abraham came to a place of such assurance in God's promise That he believed if Isaac were killed, God would raise him from the dead. How did he come to this place of assurance in God? Through patience. For years and years he waited. And when the promise was finally fulfilled, his trust in God's faithfulness had grown so deep that he was even willing to offer Isaac back to God, believing in the resurrection. You see, assurance comes through patiently waiting for the promises of God. If you must possess the blessing of God now to believe it, then you will never be assured of the blessing that is to come. For the substance of our inheritance is future in orientation. It is a kingdom that is to come. So then how do we know we'll receive it? Through God's promise of resurrection. That is how we have assurance. You look to the promise of God's Word and you patiently wait for Him to fulfill it. This is what Paul means when he says in Romans 8, we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. That is a way of speaking of the resurrection. We eagerly wait the resurrection, for in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. You see, people break promises all the time. Inheritances are squandered or stolen before they are passed on. Wills are changed and contested. But the word of the Lord is a promise that will never be broken. 
And when his disciples were doubting, Jesus said to them, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. For in my Father's house are many rooms. And if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. Would God tell us that we had a great inheritance if it were not so? Our hearts are fickle. We speak all sorts of empty words that never come to pass, but not God. How do you know that God will give you what He has promised you? In hope you patiently wait for His promised word to come about. Now, there are some of you who will object. You'll say, well, how do I know for sure that God will keep His promise? Sure, His Word says it. Sure, He made a promise. But how do I really, really know that I'll have this inheritance? Well, look at verses 16 through 18. Because they address this concern. We read, For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Now, packed into these three verses are many important truths. The first that I want you to see is in that last phrase in verse 18. All that we are discussing is aimed toward encouraging us to hold fast our hope. God is under no obligation to give us anything other than His Word as confirmation that He will give to us what He has promised. But because of our weakness and His grace... He moves to assure us of His promise by guaranteeing it with an oath. Now back up to verse 16. There the author begins to use language associated with the courtroom. And he speaks of swearing or taking an oath to confirm a testimony. We do this even today. In a court of law, we are to give our testimony under oath. This, this oath is taken to place special emphasis on the importance of truth and to invoke a higher authority to ensure that there is judgment against someone who lies. We swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help me God. And what we see in this verse is that to confirm His promise, God was willing to swear to its confirmation. He was willing to take an oath to show more convincingly that it was true. It is so unbelievable. The idea that God will take dead bodies and raise them from their graves and that He will renew this world and that we will inhabit this world for all eternity is so beyond all of our conception and that God gracefully not only tells us it's going to happen, but He confirms that it will happen with an oath. In Genesis 22, as Abraham is about to offer his son in faith. God provides a substitute. And there we read, And God said, 
By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall inherit the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. You see, in Abraham... And in this covenant promise that God makes to Abraham, we have the initial promise of inheritance. It is given first in Genesis 12, but then it is confirmed with an oath in Genesis 22. God will surely give his people the promised inheritance. The next thing we see in this text is that the oath had to be sworn by God unto himself. Why? Well, there is nothing higher that God could swear upon. There is no higher authority than God himself. He can't appeal to anything greater. He is the unchangeable ground of all truth. And so by his oath, we have two unchangeable confirmations that he will give to his people the promised inheritance. We have the word of God and we have the oath of God. So often when we search for, inherit- or for assurance, when it comes to spiritual matters, we want to look inward. We want to feel as though God's promises are true. And no doubt it is good and it is a blessing to feel a sense of assurance. But what this passage is seeking to do is to have us turn our focus away from this internal subjective feeling of assurance and to look outward to the objective evidence that God has provided for our assurance. How do you know that God will bring you into the renewed creation? Because his purposes are unchangeable. He has promised and he has sworn. So don't enter the maze of endless self-reflection asking yourself, do I have assurance or do I not have assurance? Do I know I'm going to get this or do I not know am I going to get this? Rather, flee to God for refuge. Go to his word for assurance. Read it again and again and again and see how he not only promises, but he confirms his promises again and again with oaths. By example, in Isaiah 45, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. Well, how do I know you will save me, God? Well, he says, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. How do we grow in our assurance? We hold fast to the objective oath of God's word. He has promised it, and he has confirmed it. You see, the reason we need assurance is because we live in a world where things are constantly in flux. I know that generations prior to our own had to deal with change. However, I believe that our day is particularly marked by the instability of rapid change. Technology is out of date almost as soon as it is purchased. People and families are on the move, moving from town to town or state to state or country to country. 
And morality is constantly morphing from day to day. Those things which were clearly taboo even 20 years ago or 10 years ago are now being regarded as virtuous and good. So how can we have assurance in the unchangeable nature of God's promise in a world where everything around us is constantly changing? Look at verse 19. There we read, We have this, as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Now this image of an anchor is simple but profound if you reflect upon it. If you've ever been out on the water, you know how unstable an unanchored vessel can be. Two weeks ago, my family and I were on vacation up in North Carolina, or down in North Carolina. I lived in South Carolina, it was up. Now I'm in Virginia, it's down at Lake Lure. And one of the things that my kids enjoy doing is taking their grandparents' pontoon boat out into the middle of the lake and jumping off of the boat and swimming in the middle of the lake. But with each dive into the water, as they push off of the boat, the boat begins to drift. And as we're out there, minute after minute, the boat is just going in constant circles all around the lake because it is not nailed down. It isn't anchored down to anything. How much more if we were out on the ocean where there are currents that pull vessels that are not properly secured. You can drift and you can float away. And life feels like this unstable boat. Every little pressure seems to push us all around, and we feel as though we are unmoored. This unanchored vessel is subject to the flow and currents of the world around us. One day it's fashionable to wear brown boots and vests. The next day, converse shoes and shorts. One day it's forbidden to marry someone of the same sex. The next it's celebrated nationally. One day church attendance is culturally accepted as a good, and the next it's a liability. One day you are sure of your salvation and the truth of God's word, and the next you're in doubt and fear that it's all just a scam. How do you keep yourself from drifting off with the current stream of cultural doctrine? You anchor yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ, for it is only through Christ that we will receive the promised inheritance. The inheritance is given to the Son, and therefore it is through the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we have assurance we will receive it. The text says that we may enter the inner place behind the curtain because Jesus has gone there as a forerunner. Now, what does this mean? What what is he talking about when he's talking about the curtain and going behind the curtain? Well, this is an image of the temple. And in the temple, the very center of the temple was a place called the Holy of Holies. It was the very heart of the temple. And once a year, the high priest would enter into this most holy place and offer a sacrifice for sin on behalf of God's people. The Holy of Holies was the very dwelling place of God on earth. And so to go behind the curtain was to go into the very presence of God. 
Second, the curtain was there to separate what was holy from what was unholy. It was to show that man in his sinful state was not allowed to enter into the presence of God. Embroidered upon the curtain, as we read in the book of Exodus, was the image of an angel that was barring the way into the presence of God. It was emblematic of what happened at Eden. For at Eden, to keep man from re-entering the presence of God, the Lord stationed an angel to keep sinful man away from God. Third, Jesus has entered the presence of God. The Bible tells us that when He died on the cross, this curtain that was separating the holy God from a sinful people was torn in two. And that Jesus entered into the very presence of God and has taken away the need for the separation between man and God. Even as the high priest would offer the sacrifice once a year, Jesus offered Himself up the sacrifice of His own body and blood. A high priest after the order of Melchizedek, as verse 20 concludes. You see, Jesus has entered the presence of God as a forerunner. And that means that He has done it on our behalf. It means that all who come to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith and are united to Him will follow Him into the very presence of God. He is not merely the first as the forerunner. Rather, He is the representative who brings us into the very presence of God. And this is how you have assurance In a world of constant change, you follow the forerunner into the very presence of God. Being cleansed from sin by the sacrifice of Christ, you come into the presence of God. Now as we come to the end of our passage, I want to take a step back and look at this idea of inheritance from an even broader perspective. You see, when God created man, He placed him in the Garden of Eden. It was a place of order and beauty and life. And above all, it was a place where God would dwell with man. But when sin entered the world through Adam's disobedience, man was exiled from Eden. And again, this angel was assigned as a guard, barring sinful man from re-entering this land. And yet it was God's unchangeable purpose to bring man back to himself, to bring man back into Eden, for this was the land that God had created for him. The first and provisional fulfillment of this purpose was the land of Canaan. Even as we spoke of earlier, Abraham was promised this land. And following the exodus, the Lord brought His people to this land, this rest, this inheritance, this new Eden through the leadership of Joshua. As they were about to take possession of the land and enter into it, again they encountered an angel with a sword drawn, marking out that they were about to enter into the very presence of God. And yet Canaan was only a foretaste 
of the true renewed Eden that man was meant to inherit. The substance of that promise is the new creation that awaits us. And the way to receive that inheritance is through Jesus Christ who has entered into the very presence of God, past the angels separating man from God's presence and bringing all who are united to him into this eternal kingdom. And this is the assurance that we have that we will inherit this land. In the book of Revelation, we read of our coming inheritance Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, and no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. And they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no lamp to light or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. Christian, these words are trustworthy and true. It is God's unchangeable purpose to bring you into this inheritance. It is the anchor of hope to which we cling. Jesus has ushered in this new creation through his resurrection. And we now patiently wait with hope, holding fast to the unbreakable, unchangeable oath of God. How do you know? How do you have assurance that you will receive this inheritance? Because God has made a promise. Because God has sealed that promise with an oath. And because His Son has secured the promise through His own body and blood. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. But Father God, we come to you now at this time and we pray that you would seal to us the promise of our inheritance. Our adoption as sons, the resurrection of the body that we might know for certain that we will obtain this world renewed because of the work of Christ. We pray in a world that is constantly changing, and constantly causing us to lose hope, that you would secure us to the anchor of our hope, the Lord Jesus Christ. For it's in his name that we do pray. Amen.